Kelsey Sims. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a lead community mental health trainer for PMHP, um, which is the public mental health partnership out of UCLA in partnership with DMH. My background is in direct service, doing social work in San Francisco and the greater Bay Area, doing a lot of uh, outreach, um, assertive outreach, working with folks who were um, unhoused, who were marginally housed, uh, and working with a lot of folks who experience psychotic symptoms. Um, and so I am very excited to talk with you today about a couple of different approaches to working with folks with psychosis that come out of CBT. But for psychosis can be helpful alongside other treatments going on. It can really enhance your uh, partnership with your client in a variety of ways. So we'll get into that. All right. So we have a two-hour training today. We're not, it's not going to be comprehensive, everything you need to know. All of these modalities take a lot of practice, a lot of training, a lot of exposure. So this is an introduction um, and some practical applications, maybe some ways you can use CBT for psychosis and other approaches to uh, work with your clients in the short term, but also see if maybe this is something you want more training on in the future. All right, so our learning objectives for today are to gain a greater understanding of the symptoms of psychosis and their presentation, what they look like. The other, another goal is to recognize the purpose of CBT in addressing psychosis. How can it be used with um, these experiences people have? since a lot of CBT training doesn't necessarily include those kinds of symptoms. Um, we're gonna specifically talk about cognitive restructuring. And finally, um, the final objective is to identify useful interventions within the third wave of CBT for working with clients with psychosis. So we'll go into several of those. Here's a rough agenda um, for what we're gonna be doing. I'll do an overview of different psychotic symptoms. Um, I'll offer an alternate view of psychosis that can help be more person-centered with your clients. We'll do an overview of CBT on its own and then do um, integrate psychosis into how you would use CBT. And finally, we'll get into a couple of third wave, C third wave CBT modalities that go well uh, for clients with psychosis. And those are acceptance commitment therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and compassion-focused therapy, all for psychosis. All right, so we're gonna kind of start big and blunt, I suppose, and get a little bit more nuanced as we go. So just so you know, this is certainly not all that psychosis is in this image, um, but we're, we're starting big and gonna uh, narrow in. So when we think of psychosis, there are, there's positive symptoms and negative symptoms. And these, you may know this from your experience in the field, but they don't mean a good symptom and a bad symptom, right? Um, positive has to do with something being more active, more observable by others, um, happening kind of outside that person's body, potentially. Um, maybe observable by others and um, have more activity going on. For negative symptoms, we see this as a more internal um, kind of drawing in process that is not uh, 
necessarily as obvious to others that someone is experiencing it. So some examples of those are delusions, and we'll get into what delusions are, hallucinations, and disorganized speech. There are more positive symptoms not on this list, for instance, paranoia, um, but this just gives you a general sense of what the difference is in these two categories. Negative symptoms might look like flattened affect, not showing emotion on the face or reduced speech, not being able to come up with words, um, might be lack of initiative. A lot of this can look like isolation, staying away from people. And so it's hard to know exact, harder often to know exactly what's going on there. So for the positive symptoms of psychosis, we have hallucinations. And these are experiences that can, that a person has that others do not share, right? And so these can come in a variety of different ways, um, can show up for people. The most common we've all heard of is hearing voices, right? If someone hears voices that other people do not hear, we consider that a hallucination. Um, there's also uh, visual hallucinations, right? Seeing something that other people do not see. Then we have all these fancy words, and I always have to use the cheat sheet for these and for the types of delusions. So knowing exactly what each of these words is isn't always super important in the work. Um, but just knowing that people can have hallucinations that have to do with um, feeling things that aren't there, that would be tactile, uh, olfactory smelling something that other people don't smell, gustatory, don't know how you say that word, tasting something that others don't. So just uh, we're expanding our minds, hallucinations, not just hearing voices or seeing things that can come up in a number of ways, depending on what is causing those symptoms. Delusions are another psychotic symptom. And delusions have to do with folks having a deeply held, strongly held belief about themselves, about the world that is very hard to dissuade them from, just even when one is presented with evidence to the contrary, right? So if someone has a delusion, it's going to be really, really difficult for them to uh, change the way they think about that delusion. Um, and, you know, telling someone that's not true and giving them evidence often does not help the delusion resolve. It is, it exists despite that. And that's just the nature of delusions. And this is the one I really need the cheat sheet for, because when do we use these words uh, with our clients? Not very often. But um, so we see persecutory delusions, or persecutory delusions. These have to do with feeling that others are um, out to get you, doing things to you, things like that. Uh, maybe it includes a lot of paranoia, worried about other people impacting you in the moment. Uh, grandiose delusions have to do with being kind of, you know, larger than life, uh, feeling Folks with grandiose delusions may feel they've been um, given special powers. They might uh, see themselves in a godlike uh, identity, uh, things where they're just uh, having more power than perhaps might be uh, realistic. Um, erratomanic delusions have to do with thinking or believing that other people are in love with you. Uh, despite evidence to the contrary, 
um, nihilistic, has to do with believing that you are dead or a zombie or not in this world in the same way. And then somatic delusions have to do with believing something is wrong with part or all of the body. So this is just a rough overview of these two big categories of positive psychotic symptoms. Then we have negative symptoms of psychosis. And here are some that uh, I wanna offer. And I'm wondering which of these, and you can use your own words to describe these, do you notice uh, the most with your clients who experience psychosis? So the first one here is diminished emotional expression. That's you know similar to flattened affect, not really expressing much emotion. Avolition has to do with a total lack of motivation to get anything done. Um, which I think we can all relate to at some points in our lives. Um, asociality is rejecting or lacking the capacity for social interaction. Elogia is an inability to speak. And then anhedonia is an inability to feel pleasure. That one's often used along with talking about major depressive disorder. So I'm wondering if folks can let me know in the chat, which of these negative symptoms do you think you see the most in clients who experience psychosis? Asociality, mm -hmm. so maybe keeping to themselves, not trusting others, not engaging in community um, offerings. Avolition, lack of motivation, so really hard to get anything done. So I'm seeing a lot of diminished emotional expression too. So it can make it more difficult for us to understand what the emotions are when we can't see them, right? Um, and when they're not expressed, limited eye contact. Yeah, that can go with really well with a lot of these symptoms, right? Um, it can impact your socialization, having eye contact with folks, agitation I see from someone. And perhaps that agitation could be that this person is having these symptoms and has to interact with people, has to be in a space with other people that can cause someone to feel very uncomfortable and distressed, which might lead to um, agitation. Awesome. So you're very familiar with all of these. Um, this, uh, the negative symptoms can be even more difficult to deal with um, because you have less to work with, right? There's a lot of trust building that needs to happen there. So we've covered positive and negative symptoms of psychosis. Um, and now I wanted to offer a different idea about psychosis as existing on a continuum. That is not you are psychotic or you're not, you have psychosis or you don't, but that psychosis is actually um, an experience we can all relate to even if we're not diagnosed with a um, psychotic disorder. So what I mean by that is people who do not have a psychotic disorder, they can experience a lot of these symptoms from time to time. So if you think about, and I have some, Examples here, like if you are, studies show that if you have sleep deprivation, you can experience auditory and visual hallucinations just from a lack of sleep, right? Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue or become 
uh, eligible for a diagnosis, but that's something that some people experience. Um, it also can occur between sleep and awake states for anybody. Um, and then if we think about delusion-like or paranoia-like thoughts and beliefs, a lot of us might have experience believing something that maybe we don't know how true it is, or we think it's really true, but our friends don't see it that way. We can kind of relate to that um, experience of having an idea that differs a lot from other people. And maybe, maybe it has to do with uh, relationships in your life or thoughts about your own work, right? Maybe undervaluing your work. You might have paranoia about other folks judging how you're doing. Um, and there are some other examples of times where we might experience something similar to a psychotic symptom. So for instance, if you, you know, we all have smartphones these days, when you have your smartphone in your pocket, have you ever felt a vibration from your smartphone and then looked at it and nothing was there, right? You experienced a sensation that didn't actually happen. So if we think about these kinds of small moments in our lives and uh, relate them to our clients who ex experience psychosis, it can, it can kind of normalize it, right? These experiences are on a continuum. For some people, those experiences happen a lot and become distressing and impact their functioning, like how they're going to get their needs met, uh, get their goals met, live a life that they consider worth living. Um, that can be really difficult. And um, when you're distracted all the time and distressed by these experiences, however, it doesn't mean that those experiences are completely foreign to the rest of us. So there is a way that we can relate to this stuff if we don't have that direct lived experience of a psychotic disorder. Um, so all this to say, presence of a psychotic symptoms do not automatically suggest or confer functional impairment or illness. So just because you thought your phone vibrated when it doesn't, doesn't mean you need to go see a psychiatrist, right? Um, that's like a very low level, right? But if someone perhaps has psychotic symptoms that they're fine, they're able to have a job, they're able to feel good, um, not be too distracted or distressed, they that would the DSM won't let us uh, diagnose them, right? We have folks need to be functionally impaired in order to receive a diagnosis. So psychosis can happen and um, a lot of uh, variety, right? Often underlying medical issues can often produce psychotic symptoms too. UTI a big one, yes, that's a great point. So it's not just, you know, day to day, we think our phone's ringing or you're home alone and you hear something and you think it's a burglar, you know, um, but there can also be medical conditions that can produce psychotic symptoms, you know, um, likely medications, drugs, all kinds of things can trigger these symptoms. Um, dementia, right? Mm -hmm. Self-prescribed substances, yeah, definitely. Um, so we can agree, just having a psychotic symptom doesn't mean that uh, someone is functionally impaired or has a mental illness. It just means they're having that symptom. What we need to do is figure out 
how much that's impacting the person. So symptoms should be addressed according to how much they cause distress and or distract an individual from their goals. Um, and the goals of relationships, physical health, meaningful roles, leisure and relaxation, which every human being deserves to engage in, right? If folks aren't able to do these things, then that's when we want to address them. And the reason I spend so much time talking about this is that taking the stance can really enhance your clients' feelings of safety with you and help to reduce stigma. There's so much stigma around psychosis. Um, and our clients who experience psychosis, they experience the stigma everywhere. And if we can be a place where we're reducing it, it can help folks reduce their own stigma towards themselves um, and encourage their self-compassion to grow, which we'll get into in a little bit um, more depth at the end of the training today. So just an offering to think about it a little bit differently. When I learned about CBT for psychosis, uh, this really helped me kind of reframe my thoughts about folks' experience. So now I'm going to show this video because I think lived experience is supreme. And this uh, person has a great talk about their experience. So let me get that going for you. The day I left home for the first time to go to university was a bright day, brimming with hope and optimism. I'd done well at school, expectations for me were high, and I gleefully entered the student life of lectures, parties, and traffic home theft. Now, appearances, of course, can be deceptive, and to an extent, this feisty, energetic persona of lecture-going and traffic home stealing was a veneer, albeit a very well-crafted and convincing one. Underneath, I was actually deeply unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. Frightened of other people, of the future, of failure, and of the emptiness that I felt was within me. But I was skilled at hiding it, and from the outside, appeared to be someone with everything to hope for and aspire to. This fantasy of invulnerability was so complete that I even deceived myself. And as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. I was leaving a seminar when it started, humming to myself, fumbling with my bag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice calmly observe, she is leaving the room. I looked around and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs and hurried home, and there it was again, she is opening the door. This was the beginning. The voice had arrived. And the voice persisted, days and then weeks of it, on and on, narrating everything I did in the third person. She is going to the library, she is going to a lecture. It was neutral, impassive, and even, after a while, strangely companionate and reassuring. Although I did notice that its calm exterior sometimes slipped, in that it occasionally mirrored my own unexpressed emotion. So, for example, if I was angry and had to hide it, which I often did, being very adept at concealing how I really felt, then the voice would sound frustrated. Otherwise, it was neither sinister nor disturbing, although even at that point, it was clear that it had something to communicate to me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote and inaccessible. Now, it was then that I made a fatal mistake in that I told a friend about the voice, and she was horrified. A subtle conditioning process had begun. 
the implication that normal people don't hear voices, and the fact that I did meant that something was very seriously wrong. Such fear and mistrust was infectious. Suddenly, the voice didn't seem quite so benign anymore. And when she insisted that I seek medical attention, I duly complied, and which proved to be mistake number two. I spent some time telling the college GP about what I perceived to be the real problem: anxiety, low self-worth, fears about the future. And was met with bored indifference until I mentioned the voice. Upon which he dropped his pen, swung round, and began to question me with a show of real interest. And to be fair, I was desperate for interest and help. And I began to tell him about my strange commentator. And I always wish, at this point, the voice had said, "She is digging her own grave." I was referred to a psychiatrist, who likewise took a grim view of the voice's presence, subsequently interpreting everything I said through a lens of latent insanity. For example, I was part of a student TV station that broadcast news bulletins around the campus, and during an appointment, which was running very late, said, "I'm sorry, doctor, I've got to go. I'm reading the news at six." Now it's down in my medical records that Eleanor has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. <laughs> It was at this point that events began to rapidly overtake me. A hospital admission followed, the first of many. A diagnosis of schizophrenia came next, and then, worst of all, a toxic, tormenting sense of hopelessness, humiliation, and despair about myself and my prospects. But having been encouraged to see the voice, not as an experience but as a symptom, my fear and resistance towards it intensified. Now, essentially, this represented taking an aggressive stance towards my own mind—a kind of psychic civil war—and in turn, this caused the number of voices to increase and grow progressively hostile and menacing. Helplessly and hopelessly, I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become both my persecutors and my only perceived companions. They told me, for example, that if I proved myself worthy of their help, then they could change my life back to how it had been. And a series of increasingly bizarre tasks was set—a kind of labor of Hercules. Started off quite small, for example, pull out three strands of hair, but gradually grew more extreme, culminating in commands to harm myself and a particularly dramatic instruction: "You see that tutor over there? You see that glass of water? We have to go over and pour it over him in front of the other students." Which I actually did, and which, needless to say, did not endear me to the faculty. In effect, a vicious cycle of fear, avoidance, mistrust, and misunderstanding had been established. And this was a battle in which I felt powerless and incapable of establishing any kind of peace or reconciliation. Two years later, and the deterioration was dramatic. By now, I had the whole frenzied repertoire: terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre. Intractable delusions. My mental health status had been a catalyst for discrimination, verbal abuse, and physical and sexual assault. And I've been told by my psychiatrist, Elna, you'd be better off with cancer because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I've been diagnosed, drugged, and discarded, and was by now so tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Now, looking back on the wreckage and despair of those years, it seems to me now as if someone died in that place, and yet someone else was saved. A broken and haunted person began that journey, but the person who emerged was a survivor, and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. Many people have harmed me in my life, and I remember them all, but the memories grow pale and faint. In comparison with the people who've helped me, 
the fellow survivors, the fellow voice hearers, the comrades and collaborators, the mother who never gave up on me, who knew that one day I would come back to her and was willing to wait for me for as long as it took, the doctor who only worked with me for a brief time, but who reinforced his belief that recovery was not only possible but inevitable, and during a devastating period of relapse, told my terrified family, "Don't give up hope." I believe that Eleanor can get through this. Sometimes, you know, it snows as late as May, but summer always comes eventually. Fourteen minutes is not enough time to fully credit those good and generous people who fought with me and for me, and who waited to welcome me back from that agonised, lonely place. But together, they forged a blend of courage, creativity, integrity, and an unshakable belief that my shattered self could become healed and whole. I used to say that these people saved me, but what I now know is they did something even more important in that they empowered me to save myself. And crucially, they helped me to understand something which I'd always suspected: that my voices were a meaningful response to traumatic life events, particularly childhood events, and as such, were not my enemies, but a source of insight into solvable emotional problems. Now, at first, this was very difficult to believe, not least because the voices appeared so hostile and menacing. So, in this respect, a vital first step was learning to separate out a metaphorical meaning from what I'd previously interpreted to be a literal truth. So, for example, voices which threatened to attack my home, I learned to interpret as my own sense of fear and insecurity in the world, rather than an actual objective danger. Now, at first, I would have believed them. I remember, for example, sitting up one night on guard outside my parents' room to protect them from what I thought was a genuine threat from the voices, because I'd had such a bad problem with self-injury that most of the cutlery in the house had been hidden. So instead of arming myself with a plastic fork, like picnicware, and sort of sat outside the room clutching it, waiting to spring into action should anything happen, it was like, "Don't mess with me." A plastic fork, don't you know?、Um, no, strategic. But a later response, and much more useful, would be to try and deconstruct the message behind the words. So, when the voices warned me not to leave the house, then I would thank them for drawing my attention to how unsafe I felt. Because if I was aware of it, then I could do something positive about it. But go on to reassure both them and myself that we were safe and didn't need to feel frightened anymore. I would set boundaries for the voices and try to interact with them in a way that was assertive yet respectful, establishing a slow process of communication and collaboration, in which we could learn to work together and support one another. Throughout all of this, what I would ultimately realise was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself, and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process or resolve: memories of sexual trauma and abuse, of anger, shame, guilt, low self-worth. The voices took the place of this pain and gave words to it, and possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I realised that the most hostile and aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly, and as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. It was armed with this knowledge that ultimately I would gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice, gradually withdraw from all my medication, and return to psychiatry. Only this time, from the other side, ten years after the voice first came, I finally graduated. This time, with the highest degree in psychology the university had ever given, and one year later, the highest masters. Which I always say isn't bad for a mad woman. In fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during the exam, which technically, possibly, counts as cheating. And <laughs> 
And to be honest, sometimes I quite enjoyed their attention as well. As Oscar Wilde has said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. It also makes you very good at eavesdropping because you can listen to two conversations simultaneously. So it's not all bad. I worked in mental health services. I spoke at conferences. I published book chapters and academic articles, and I argued, and continue to do so, the relevance of the following concept: that an important question in psychiatry shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you. And all the while, I listened to my voices, with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect, and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance, and respect towards myself. And I remember the most moving and extraordinary moment when supporting another young woman who was terrorised by her voices and becoming fully aware for the very first time that I no longer felt that way myself, but was finally able to help someone else who was. I'm now very proud to be a part of Intervoice, the organisational body of the International Hearing Voices Movement, an initiative inspired by the work of Professor Marius Rom and Dr. Sonja Escher, which locates voice hearing as a survival strategy. A sane reaction to insane circumstances, not as an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia to be endured, but a complex, significant, and meaningful experience to be explored. Together, we envisage and enact a society that understands and respects voice hearing, supports the needs of individuals who hear voices, and which values them as full citizens. This type of society is not only possible; it's already on its way. To paraphrase Chavez. Once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. For me, the achievements of the Hearing Voices movement are a reminder that empathy, fellowship, justice, and respect are more than words. They are convictions and beliefs, and that beliefs can change the world. In the last 20 years, the Hearing Voices movement has established Hearing Voices networks. In 26 countries across five continents, working together to promote dignity, solidarity, and empowerment for individuals in mental distress, to create a new language and practice of hope, which, at its very centre, lies an unshakable belief in the power of the individual. As Peter Levine has said, the human animal is a unique being, endowed with an instinctual capacity to heal and the intellectual spirit. To harness this innate capacity. In this respect, for members of society, there is no greater honour or privilege than facilitating that process of healing for someone. To bear witness, to reach out a hand, to share the burden of someone suffering, and to hold the hope for their recovery. And likewise, for survivors of distress and adversity that we remember, we don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique. We are irreplaceable. What lies within us can never be truly colonized, contorted, or taken away. The light never goes out. As a very wonderful doctor once said to me, "Don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you." Thank you. All right, I love that video. Every time I watch it,、um, it's rare to hear from folks. With lived experience、uh, in this world, so to hear someone who has experienced、uh, a really 
distressing time and found a way to find that peace within it uh, is so inspiring. Um, <clears throat> thanks for the comments about it. Powerful and encouraging, hopeful, great testimony. She articulated so much of the mystery, right? Yeah, she really made it almost relatable. Um, and that can just help us uh, humanize our clients more and more, right? To understand what um, this experience can be and that we're allowed to hold on to hope anyway, right? Um, sometimes when clients reach us, there might be a sense of hopelessness because of all they've been through before. But being able to create a safe space for people um, to feel uh, that maybe it's okay to trust um, and grow some compassion um, is a great place to start. So any other, uh, I also like the last part, tell me about you. Don't tell me what other people have said about you. I know there are so many, so many uh, things going on when we get like a new client, we get paperwork documenting what has happened before. We might have this sense of who the person is, but we got to get into how this individual sees themselves, what, um, what these symptoms mean to them. Um, another piece out of that video that I really like um, is that she really articulates the difference between the stance of being a mental health provider or caseworker who is trying to, I am empowering you, I am giving you power between that and actually we're not like, it's, we don't have the power to give to people, right? We have tools to offer people so that they can empower themselves. And I think um, she put it much more eloquently, you know, and she felt empowered to save herself versus relying on others to save her. Um, and another thing that struck me this time listening was that her voices took the place of her pain so her pain was expressed to the voices and understanding that really changed her relationship with them. So keep her in mind as we go forward um, and talk about these approaches to working with psychosis. Okay, so what is CBT for psychosis? It is a form of psychotherapy that engages the person in examining and challenging their psychotic experiences and developing coping, strategies to manage symptoms. And we'll talk about kind of the basics of CBT and then how this goes into the psychotic symptoms and how we can use different tools for that. And so the goals for CBT of psychosis are to re reduce the occurrence of symptoms if, we, if that's possible, but really it's about reducing the distress associated with symptoms and or the degree to which those symptoms interfere with a person's functioning and quality of life. So we're not necessarily, you know, in a lot of psychiatry on teams I've been on, we talk about symptom reduction, right? Did you, were your voices less intense? Were they less often? Were you able to get out of bed more often? You know, really reducing these symptoms. And if we can shift a little bit into what is the impact of the system symptoms and reducing those, right? The If the impact is distress and we can't fully get rid of the symptom because even though 
folks might be on medications that help with that, often symptoms don't go away entirely, right? There's still something there to work with. Um, and there's something there that could be causing this continued distress and functional impairment and not being able to uh, live life in the way that this person would if they weren't so distressed and distracted and um, going through it. So just a note there that the relevance of CBT in addition to medications is that we have these leftovers. We, we can't just get rid of psychosis with medication. Being able to work on these symptoms as they go is helpful. And also, as you probably know, many people choose not to take medication and we cannot force people to do that. And when we push people to into taking medication, often has the opposite impact, right? They're feeling pressured. They maybe don't come to your next session. They don't wanna hear about it. Um, when we push people, they're less likely to do the thing. So if we meet them where they're at and um, are able to help them reduce the imp impacts of these symptoms, it can be a, a much more achievable goal and uh, can match what they need most. So stages will look similar to stages in other uh, modalities. Uh, so engagement is the first system, first um, step in working with a client, of course. So making sure we're being um, person-centered and being um, trying to be in our authentic selves, authentically connecting with folks, um, learning some reflective listening skills, uh, really meeting people where they're at, trying not to push an agenda. Those are all really important in the engagement phase. Um, assessment, trying to figure out what is the problem that the client is currently most invested in tackling and how can you maybe come up with some methods to work on those. And then intervention, that's when you're doing the methods with your client. And relapse prevention refers to when maybe the intervention stops working, the client isn't able to go there, um, circling back and seeing how that can be improved. So what is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? Um, so we've got the cognitive piece and the behavioral piece. We will be focusing most on the cognitive piece today, just to put that out there. Um, but I'm going to talk about the CBT triangle, cognitive distortions, and cognitive restructuring. So the CBT triangle has to do with the connection between our thoughts, our emotions, and our behavior behaviors, our actions, right? So if we have uh, an, a situation happen where we might have a thought about it, you know, um, and then that might stir up an emotion that we have. So, you know, maybe perhaps someone in line at the grocery store cuts in front of you and your thought is, um, your thought is it's not fair, I should be here. And the emotion you have is anger. And so you yell at the person, it's not fair, you know, F off, whatever. And that could be the behavior. Uh, another idea could be, okay, someone cuts in front of you at the grocery store and your thought is, oh, they must not have seen that I was here. 
So, and your feeling is not anger, but confusion. And so you ask, oh, did you know that I'm in line? You know, so the, the different way we think can impact our mood and our actions, but it's not just that direction. It's not like you have a thought and then a feeling and then a behavior every time, right? When we engage in a behavior that might impact our thoughts, right? When I tried cross-country skiing, I had a lot of thoughts about this is scary. I can't do this. Why am I here? And then I had emotions of I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I don't want to be doing this, right? So a lot of different uh, aspects of our of ourselves impact the other ones, right? So um, this is this is the essential kind of three pieces of the pie uh, when we're talking about CBT. And so if we think about that cognitive piece, the thoughts on its own, um, we can talk about a common theme in CBT, our cognitive distortion. So when our thoughts don't necessarily match re reality, okay? And so we were talking about psychosis before. This can be, we could even maybe connect the two, right? So for instance, all or nothing thinking, some people call it black or white thinking, where there's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. It's yes or no. It's I'm the best or I'm the worst, those kinds of extremes. Then we've got overgeneralization where you might experience a negative event and view it as a never-ending pattern of defeat. I've been there. You might relate if you're just having a rough time and then something else happens and you're like, yeah, that's why everything's terrible. Um, a mental filter that uh, has to do with dwelling on negatives and ignoring positives, um, which, you know, I think in this work, working with clients, we can often uh, do this with ourselves and our clients, right? Maybe it's easier to notice the negative. Um, oh, I didn't, you know, that session with my client didn't go well. They were upset about this and kind of ignore the positive. Well, they came to the session and they didn't, you know, they, there are all these things that were, you're missing. So it's like you have a filter and it filters out all the, all the good stuff. So an example of a mental filter would be um, you, and I'm, I'm using this like for your own life maybe. So perhaps you get a performance evaluation and you can only remember the negative aspects. Say your performance was satisfactory, which is great. You know, like, no, you're not gonna lose your job. Everything's fine. Um, but you only notice that your productivity was dinged or something. Um, and you can't see the other positives in your evaluation. So that's an example. And I hope that uh, makes sense. It's like, it's like almost um, like there's a filter on your eyes from being able to see what, uh, what the whole picture and you're just focusing on the negative. Discounting the positives is like someone presents you with the positive and you're like, mm, doesn't count for me. Um, yeah, maybe if that person got a compliment, I would say it's good, but no, I don't count because uh, I just can't accept that positive. Jumping to conclusions, this is when you engage in things like mind reading or fortune telling, thinking you can read someone else's mind about what's going on even though as far as we know, we can't do that. Um, or fortune telling, oh, if this happens, then that's gonna happen, then that's gonna happen. We don't know for sure, but these are things we can all relate to at different times in our lives. 
magnification or minimization, you know, when we blow things way out of proportion or, or ignore them, even though we really should have looked at them. So that refers to emotional reasoning is where you're reasoning from how you feel. For instance, like, oh, I feel like an idiot. I must be one. Or I don't feel like doing this, so I'll put it off. Um, that's what emotional reasoning can be. That can be a cognitive distortion because it doesn't really get what you need or want. Um, should statements um, where you put a lot of shoulds on yourself and other people. Um, and then labeling ourselves or others with labels, you know, I'm a jerk, I'm a loser. Uh, instead of thinking, oh, I didn't handle that interaction with my friend very well. Let me come back from that and, you know, um, realize I can do something different versus, you know, turning it into who you are as a person and thus less hope for changing. And then personalization and blame, that's when you're blaming yourself uh, when it's unwarranted or inappropriate, or you're blaming others when it's inappropriate or unwarranted, just kind of throwing blame around versus being able to actually look at the situation. And these are really common. We often experience a variety of these in our lives. Um, and the goal of CBT and cognitive restructuring, um, the cognitive restructuring piece of CBT is to take a closer look at these and figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Um, how is this compared to maybe a more balanced version? So cognitive restructuring, where we're taking these cognitive distortions, which are also sometimes called unhelpful thoughts. So what do we do with these distortions? We try to change them when we're doing strict CBT. We try to balance them out, give them a little bit more um, realistic, uh, realistic character to them. So the really basic way that I think of cognitive restructuring is these three C's, catch it, check it, and change it. Um, it's my shortcut in my head. And, um, and so what you're, what we do is, okay, the thought is happening and you catch it, which is you notice, oh, I noticed I'm having that thought that I'm the worst or something's bad, or um, I'm blaming myself, or um, I'm thinking that there are only two very distinct options instead of a compromise. So you're just checking, catching it. This is an unhelpful thought. It's not propelling me forward. It's, it's causing distress. And then you check it, you look at it, you examine it. Like what's going on here? Am I looking at this in a complete way? And if not, then you change it. So you look at what could be missing. Is there evidence to the contrary of your thought? Are there um, examples of times where that thought is not true? Um, is there something you can add to the thought? Um, so if you had a thought like, I'm the worst at, I, I'll never get on top of my notes or something perhaps in your work. Um, if you look at that thought, you might say, hmm, that word never implies never, which means that I would never catch up on my notes. Is that completely true? right? And it's like, okay, in the past, I have caught up. And I do get into the cycle, but I do eventually catch up. So 
perhaps I could catch up maybe if I gave myself some more structure around when I'm going to do it or something like that. So then the thought changes from I'm never going to finish these notes to I can finish these notes if I put some extra effort in right now and I want to change how I approach this in the future. So it's a longer thought. It's not an automatic thought. It's uh, there's intention, there's thoughtfulness. So we're catching it. We're looking at this unhelpful thought. We're trying to figure out, okay, is there evidence? Is there anything I can add or remove from this statement? Change a word, figure it out. And the idea is that something happens, an activating event. Um, this thought or belief has an impact. And then there are consequences. So when we have cognitive restructuring, we're taking that thought and we're changing it. And so the B part of the ABCs of CBT is um, going to impact the consequences for good. So this is when I'll get into a psychosis example. Okay, so ABCs before cognitive restructuring. And let me go over this again very briefly. So we have A is activating event. This is anything that occurs that makes a person have a thought, and in this, these examples, an unhelpful thought. It's not helping them achieve what they want to in life, you know, from small things to big things. The belief is the thought or belief that you uh, is sparked by that event, um, whatever it is. And then the consequences are how you and what you do next. So here's an example. The voice states, they are making movies about you again. So this person is out in the world and a voice states to them, they are making movies about you again. Upon hearing the voice, the beliefs, thoughts, and images about voices come to mind. And this person's thought is, I have to make myself safe or I'm next. Um, you know, we're not exactly certain what all is going into this thought or belief, but it, it, it may, it, you know, this makes it seem like this person is very worried that they're in danger because folks, they feel that folks are making movies about them. So with this thought, they uh, need to make themselves safe. The consequences, both emotions and behaviors, this person destroys property, postures at staff, yells, curses. And it's not a great scenario, right? This didn't work out for the person who is experiencing it. They're feeling, you know, if they have all these behaviors going on, we can only imagine the emotions and thoughts running amok in their mind, right? It's a lot to deal with. Um, and so what we want to think about when we're looking at voices is how can we, like Eleanor was talking about in the video, instead of taking the literal truth of the voice, maybe seeing what that voice is trying to tell the client, um, seeing if there's evidence that the voice has um, is going to have that impact. And here's an example of what that shift could look like. So we're, if I want you to keep your eye on that middle blue box. So the voice is gonna stay the same and then the belief and thoughts are gonna change and so do the consequences. So here after cognitive restructuring, we've worked on 
in between, or we've worked on with this client, that thought of, I have to make myself safe or I'm next. Um, you know, maybe we've talked about it. So what does that mean? Um, why are you unsafe in that situation? You know, and helped someone catch it and look at it and really analyze what, what is making, what is contributing to this? How do I relate to it? Is there evidence? And so for this, the thought after all that work, the thought that the person comes up with is the movies can't hurt me. I'm safe here. So they've talked with their therapist or their provider and they've, you know, come to determine that, okay, they are making movies about me. That belief hasn't changed, but the movies don't end up hurting me. So I can realize that I'm actually safe in this moment. And the consequences for that are the person then self-soothes in their room and checks in with their counselor. I mean, this is, you know, simplified ideal scenario here, but the work you're using CBT, not just to talk about these cognitive distortions, but viewing the voices as an indication of what the emotional state might be. Um, and how the voices might be a tool that folks can use versus just something to get rid of, because that's not always the case. So when we're working with clients with psychosis, we might be, we might want to engage in reality testing right away. Um, and I would, I would suggest not doing that. Um, and when we're talking about reality testing, that's when we're testing whether something is true or not in reality, trying to uh, break the, uh, maybe break the strength of the belief in whatever that um, symptom is. And the reason I say it may not be best to engage right away is because we want to build a lot of rapport and trust with a client before we um, tell them what we think about their experience, right? We want to understand their experience first. Engagement and assessment, those come before the intervention. We just are gathering information. We're trying to listen and understand. And what we can do is be curious and not make assumptions. Um, we might have an idea of what this means, what a symptom might mean, but we should be open to different explanations. Our clients have a lot more wisdom of their own experience of these symptoms than we do. And so being open to exploring all possibilities, you know, maybe they are not, and we're not trying to join someone in their psychotic symptom and like validate that as like, yes, people are making a movie about you, but instead it would be more well, if people are making a movie about you, how does that impact your life, right? We're, we're being curious. We're not, you know, just refuting right away because that can feel really um, unsafe for someone who's experiencing these symptoms. Instead, we want to be um, respectful of the other person's experience while also gently asking questions that are open-ended, um, that can help them further explain what's going on and also be in the driver's seat of doing the reality testing because it's the only person who can really do that is the person with the symptoms for change to occur. So slow and steady being curious can be really helpful.
So one more thing I wanted to talk about with CBT and reality testing. So when we're talking about working with psychosis, we want to look for triggers too and help clients identify triggers that might heighten their symptoms and thus their distress. So that's also part of the reality testing once you've developed rapport and trust with your client. Um, all right. So what there's something missing here for me when we just talk about CBT for psychosis alone. And um, what I think is missing is um, these third wave CBT approaches that incorporate additional ways of looking at both these unhelpful thoughts and experiences um, and symptoms of psychosis and uh, how, how we work with them. So um, instead of trying to change them. So I wanted to talk about a couple of different approaches that complement CBT for psychosis very well. You can use them um, together um, or in lieu of acceptance and commitment therapy is one that is considered a third wave CBT for psychosis. The uh, techniques for addressing these unhelpful experiences um, are a little bit different, but definitely have the foundations in CBT. There's compassion-focused therapy where we're really helping folks um, develop more self-compassion in these distressing moments and in general. Um, and then there's mindfulness-based CBT. So what these all have in common is this um, increased attention to the benefits of mindfulness in a, a number of ways. And when we're talking about mindfulness, we're not just talking about sitting and meditating. Um, we're talking about something bigger than that. And we'll get into that uh, after we talk about the first two. Acceptance and commitment therapy is one of my personal favorite modalities. Um, and for me, I had a lot of experience as a consumer, as a client, receiving CBT services, and they were very helpful, very helpful for me at the beginning. And after a number of years, I got really discouraged because I'd done all this work. Okay, catch the thought and look at the thought and figure out, you know, what's missing, what can be added. And then, okay, try to change the thought and then be like, yes, I'm more, I believe that other thought, it makes more sense. And then something happens and my life shifts and those thoughts come back and I'm not catching them and it's just making me feel bad. And I felt really discouraged and frustrated. Um, and then when I learned about acceptance and commitment therapy, I realized there was another way to work with these thoughts. That wasn't necessarily this battle that I had been in um, where I'm you know, looking at the thought and like having to engage it and change it and, and do all the, put all this effort in that way. I, I didn't feel like I had the energy to do that anymore. And ACT or Acceptance Commitment Therapy um, provided a, an alternative. Oh, I think someone asked this question earlier. You're kind of helping them live with it in a sense. And that's kind of how I think about Acceptance and Commitment Therapy when it comes to these uh, either, you know, our own unhelpful thoughts and feelings, sensations, but also, um, symptoms of psychosis, you know, um, having hearing voices and um, instead of potentially grabbing onto those and looking at them and trying to weigh what's going on, 
uh, finding a way that makes that task less arduous and folks can still move forward. And ACT seeks to do that, seeks to do that by increasing what they call psychological flexibility. And we have a training, I have a training, I'm doing a training on ACT next week, introduction to ACT if you want to attend. Um, that is not the whole point of me doing this right now, but if you are intrigued, feel free to join me next week. Um, ACT complements traditional CBT by emphasizing the understanding, exploration, observation, and acceptance of thoughts and feelings, rather than the stopping and controlling of unwanted thoughts and feelings. So that's how I kind of explain how this takes CBT to another level. Um, instead of wrestling with the thoughts, we're trying to figure out how to pivot from them, pivot from those experiences. One of the aspects of acceptance and commitment therapy that can be really lovely to engage in with clients is talking about values, what's important to them. What, and in ACT, we think of values as directions, not necessarily destinations. So a value isn't like a goal of where you want to be, it's how you want to get there. Like what we want our life to be about, what we want to stand for in life, what kind of person we want to be, how we want to behave, what types of relationships we want to develop, and how we want to relate with others in the world. And what, what do those look like? Here's a whole big old list of them. Um, and this is from a really great book I encourage uh, anyone to use if you're working with folks with psychosis that includes a lot of great information and resources, handouts, worksheets, um, using both a, a bunch of third wave CBT approaches and it's called Treating Psychosis. I'm not sure if you can see it. Um, it is listed in the resources um, references section. And so this is, I just pulled it right from the book. This is their list of values. And so we have all kinds of things here. We've got animal lover. I love that, right? Team oriented, kind, insightful. How do people want to be in their lives? And so just as an experiential exercise, because that's what acceptance and commitment therapy is all about, I would love you to pick out maybe one or two of your top values and put them in the chat and share. Responsible and grateful compassionate, forgiving, kind, determined, forgiving, strong, kind, creative, hopeful, compassionate. It's like I'm in a room of people who provide wonderful, compassionate services to others. Um, these are wonderful to see. Um, and so this can be an exercise you do with your clients if they're at a space where they can identify, you can talk about what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to have? What is important to you? Where do you, how do you want to stand in this world? Um, do you want to view yourself as courageous? Do you see that? You can point out these values. Oh, it seems you're very determined when it comes to getting your needs met. Um, honest, make a difference, well-being oriented. Love that. So, um, the reason that acceptance and commitment therapy pays attention to values so much is that uh, when we think of CBT, there's cognitive and then behavioral, right? We want to activate behaviors that are helpful and maybe reduce behaviors that are not helpful when we're working with anybody, right? Even ourselves, our clients, our family members. And so um, 
in order to build motivation and capacity to do the things um, that we want to do to make the changes we want to do, it's really helpful to connect them to what matters most to someone. So if I just want to, um, if you're, if a client has a goal or uh, something they want to engage in, being able to link that back to what is meaningful to them helps it uh, resonate more, helps it strengthen and, and build the capacity to take action. And in ACT, this is called shifting into um, value-driven action. Um, so we're not act doing stuff just to do stuff. We're really connecting it and, and putting intention in there. Shifting to another kind of uh, third wave CBT, there's compassion focused therapy, which Eleanor in her video earlier referenced a little bit. She talked a lot about building self-compassion, compassion, even in her interactions in her own mind with her voices. You know, thank you for warning me. There is compassion there. She has compassion for the piece of herself that wherever the voices are coming from. And that helped really shift her relationship with the voices and her ability to move forward despite them, um, uh, even if they weren't completely going away. Um, and so compassion-focused therapy is based on the relationship between three emotional regulation systems, drive, safety, and threat. Um, and so drive is really what gets us to do things. So when we use, and, and I'll read this quote here, using compassion-focused approaches enhances the safety of compassion-based soothing system. So having a soothing system that is uh, intentional and um, compassionate versus like uh, something you engage in that might be, mm, described as a maladaptive coping mechanism or something that's not really working out for you. So we want to enhance the safety of a compassion-based compassion, compassion -based soothing system while diminishing the threat-focused emotion regulation system. So, you know, when we are feeling threatened, our bodies do all kinds of things that um, can really make it difficult to regulate our emotions and do the thing that we need to do. And so we want to enhance the ability to activate and move in the direction of valued goals. So here we have values coming in. Values and mindfulness kind of come into all of these. Um, the particular conditions that CFT aim to foster are those of safeness and compassion. And I have a short video that will demonstrate what this can look like in someone with psychosis. This is a film about Stuart. Stuart and his voices. You can't do Football it today. Brushity. No way. Football. Get up, useless. These circles represent our three major emotion systems and how they are balanced. The threat system kicks in. They're coming for you. They've set you up. They know what you've done. They'll lock you up and never let you out. You might as well give up now. <gasps> this is too much. It's all too much. Pathetic. 
its drive system comes online. Come on. Come on, Stuart. They don't want you in the team. Miss. Go on, miss. <laughs> Stuart is starting a therapy to help him cultivate compassion for himself, his feelings and his voices. Weak. You're weak for seeking therapy. You're weak. Be a man. Walk away. Don't trust her. Over time, Stuart's therapist gradually helps him to feel more safe. They practice exercises that help him feel more grounded and still. Slowing down his body using breathing and imagery. Activating his soothing system. Stuart develops an image of an ideal, compassionate person, focusing on each of its compassionate qualities. He tries to imagine what it would be like to step into this image and become this compassionate person. He walks around, acting the part of his compassionate self, getting a sense of what that would feel like, how he would think, what he would do. He practices at home as well, and gradually begins to deepen his understanding and sense of his compassionate self. As Stuart feels safer, stronger, and more courageous, he decides to start a conversation from his compassionate self to his most critical voice. Hello, what do you want, loser? I want to understand you. I want to help you feel safe. Safe? Nothing's safe around here. If it wasn't for me, you'd be... I know you're trying to help me. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me that I get scared. You're right, I do. But I want to start overcoming my fears now. I'm ready. You want to get rid of me? No, I don't. I don't want to get rid of anyone. We can work on this together. Hearing voices is a common human experience. It can often be linked to something difficult or painful that's happened in the past. Although tricky at times, with lots of practice and encouragement, Stuart's compassionate self becomes better developed. Danger! Back to bed. You're not ready. It's okay, guys. Thanks for the warning. I'll keep an eye out, but there's things I need to do today. Um, uh, oh. hey, it's all right, we can manage this. We'll see. Hey! Stuart now feels safe in relation to his voices. He understands and accepts them. They're very much part of the family, but no longer running the show. With his compassionate self in the driving seat, Stuart can now follow his true desires. So I really enjoyed that video, really seeing what the, how the compassion impacts someone's ability to move forward um, despite these symptoms not necessarily 
being reduced, right? Kind of going alongside uh, and having that compassion. So um, I hope that was uh, helpful for you all as well. And if you, I don't know if anyone noticed that the narrator was actually Eleanor, who we saw at the beginning. I, uh, I didn't realize that when I started it. And then I, I was like, I recognize that voice. So she's doing amazing work, continues. Um, so wondering any reactions to acceptance commitment therapy or compassion focused therapy, any, any things you noticed that were in common? One thing that I noticed that was in common uh, with the two, um, exactly, yeah, get both values-based and the goal not to eliminate symptoms, but to get more control of them. Yeah, and even the word control, uh, that totally works and makes sense. Um, but even in those situations, she he's not necessarily controlling the voices, he's reassuring them a little bit, right? Having this um, compassionate stance towards the voices um, helps him be more mindful of the greater world around him too, right? It's not just so much focus on the voice and the distress and maybe some rumination about it and maybe isolation and all other things that can happen. You notice that both try to remove judgment. Yeah, making them part of the internal family. Yeah, it reminds me of like internal family system stuff too. Both are non-judgmental. It's not all or nothing. Managing symptoms to improve functionality and quality of life, right? And that's why I um, wanted to include these because um, I think we can learn a lot from, you know, uh, I don't know how many of you are case managers out in the field doing outreach. I did that primarily. And so I didn't have a chance to sit for 50 minutes with a client and get into this stuff in a very uh, structured way, it had to be on the fly. Um, and so I like reviewing the different ways to approach this because some of them might come more in handy when you're on the go, when you only have five minutes, when you're um, surrounded by other people, you can't really get into things. Um, and so I hope that that also resonates with you. Voices aren't all bad. Uh, but can be embraced, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, right? The voices aren't necessarily bad and need to be eliminated. Um, they can be embraced in the ideal scenario, right? Maybe not all the way. We don't want to get into all or nothing thinking that, oh yeah, I'll just embrace all my voices. It'll be great. Um, but being able to move towards the voices instead of pushing against, um, can create space for people to uh, turn towards other things. Can you give any insight onto how to implement this with delusions? I have found them harder to treat than hallucinations. I agree with you 100%. Delusions are really tricky. And um, I think the most important thing is to not, um, like I was saying earlier, we don't want to join someone in their delusion. We don't want to validate it as as um, like a real thing that's occurring. What we wanna do is validate the emotions that go along with the delusion um, and explore reality testing even more gently. 
so gently um, without passing any uh, conclusions on to your client. So maybe asking more open-ended questions, um, shifting the conversation to the distress, um, shifting the conversation to um, the, uh, you know, other emotions that might be at play there. Um, so that would be my quick answer regarding delusions, which are really, really tricky. And I think if someone is experiencing delusions, that therapeutic alliance is extremely important and you do not need to tell someone, I believe it for that to occur. We can have a really trusting relationship with a client who has delusions without, um, without making it seem as though we believe that to be the truth, but we believe in them is the message. And it's, it can be kind of a, a fence that we're balancing on uh, between wanting to help someone uh, understand the reality and reality testing and wanting to honor their experience. All right, the last uh, modality I wanted to do a little overview on is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And so this is a modality that aims to foster a decentered awareness, which is very jargony to me and I doesn't land well. So I italicized what I thought was most impact uh, impactful. So the aim is to foster a decentered awareness of internal experience, such as pain, thoughts, and images, and respond with compassionate curiosity rather than habitual patterns of rumination and avoidance that maintain distress. So this is very similar to other uh, kind of goals of these modalities. And, and I really like that compassionate curiosity. That's what we're trying to help people develop. Um, within themselves, because compassionate curiosity looks a lot different than the this experience of rumination and avoidance, and um, where someone might be thinking over and over again about the situation, kind of in a downward spiral that is elevating, you know, stress, hormones, and and body reactions. Um, Instead, being able to kind of break away a little bit and have compassionate curiosity can really shift that experience. And in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, thoughts and feelings are viewed as events of the mind rather than necessarily accurate representations of the self or the world. And so mindfulness-based cognitive therapy really uh, centers mindfulness practices. Um, and this is also similar to the other modalities I was talking about, where we're trying to look at what's going on, our internal experiences, our clients' internal experiences, including psychosis, as not just automatically the capital T truth, um, but as something going on that can be looked at from different ways, can be balanced out, can be... Um, maybe paid closer attention to or not in shifting to other things. Uh, some examples of mindfulness I'm sure you're familiar with are deep breathing. Um, you can work with clients on breathing together in that last video. I forget what the, the client's name was supposed to be, but he was engaging in some deep breathing exercises with his therapist in the office. 
And when you're able to do that, you can, that's a thing you can do with your client in the moment if they're open to it, if it feels like um, it'll land well with them in that moment. Um, guided imagery is another way to practice some mindfulness with clients. You could have a, a recording of a meditation, a guided imagery, um, and have them you know, listen to that with you. Um, another example of a mindfulness activity is changing the channel, um, looking more at uh, things from different perspectives. And um, I want to speak a little bit about how mindfulness doesn't have to be this really intensive, like I was saying at the beginning of our training, situation where you sit and meditate for however long every day for the rest of your life. Some people do that and they're great. And I wish I was them. I, you know, it's a goal of mine. I can never do it. Um, but luckily we don't have to get our clients to meditate every day. We don't have to get them to meditate at all. Mindfulness also includes just being here in the moment, in the present and in touch with what's going on around you. Um, and you can imagine how this would be a really helpful um, practice to get into with a client who experiences psychosis. Because when you're distracted by voices or other experiences, hallucinations, paranoia, delusions, it's really easy for someone to get wrapped up in that internal world. And being able to get them back into the world outside of themselves um, can help build the, you know, if someone practices doing that, they can build the capacity to do that, which gives them more room for choice in what they're doing with their lives, uh, with their days, with their hours, with their minutes. So um, one uh, aspect of mindfulness that can be particularly helpful um, for folks who are experiencing psychosis can be groundings to really get them in the room, on the street, in the office, wherever you are with them. Um, and here's a really simple mental grounding activity, uh, would be to acknowledge five things you see around you, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Um, this just really gets someone to observe and, and think about what is happening right this second. And then there's physical grounding. And so this has to do with um, physically getting into the present. Um, and so if you all don't mind, let's engage in a very quick physical grounding. I'm going to read this to you and I want you to just experience it and see if it feels like something you could think of doing with your client. So if you can get comfortable in your chair, feel your feet on the floor, and ground your feet, feel them. It, imagine that there are roots growing from your feet down into the earth. And center and press your heels down and really feel that you are connected. Remind yourself you're connected. And notice your body. Notice the weight of your body in your chair or wherever you are. Wiggle your toes in your socks. Feel your back against the chair. You are connected to the world. That was super fast. That's it. Sorry, I have.
probably not the best energy for leading that right now. <laughs> um, a little bit peppy, but um, that's, you know, even reading it to you and doing it myself right now, I feel more grounded. Um, so it can be easy to just do a couple of these things um, with clients. Some other options for physical grounding can be to carry a grounding object in your pocket. I love this idea. I had so many clients who had different just belongings that they really found comfort in. So it could be a stone, it could be a toy, it could be um, it could be a book, it could be whatever that person finds helps them connect back to the present. Um, and then run cool or warm water over your hands. You can stretch with clients, do breathing exercises. Uh, we already talked about that. That's not necessarily grounding. Um, I did want to mention with uh, cooler, warm water running over your hands, there's another, uh, I just always like to mention it um, because it, it's just a really cool intervention for folks who experience a lot of um, emotional dysregulation is this, uh, you can dip your face in ice water and it triggers uh, the diving reflex, yeah, uh, the mammalian dive reflex, and it has a physiological impact on what is happening um, while you're activated, and it helps someone calm down um, and get regulated. So if that's something I would look into it, if uh, if you are interested, our, we have a DBT training where the trainer talks about that if you're interested in. All right. So this concludes the training. Um, here are some great resources. We have this SMI Advisor Clinical Support System for Serious Mental Illness. has a great overview of CBT for psychosis. This book that I held up and mentioned earlier, highly recommend. In addition to having a lot of resources in the book, once you have the book, you can also create an account on like the publishing website, and then you get a bunch of handouts that you can hand out to your clients, use with your clients, has a ton of them. It, there are a lot of coping skills for psychosis. There's a lot of um, values, worksheets, um, and a bunch of other stuff. So I recommend that. And then Eleanor had mentioned the Hearing Voices Network. Um, and so that website is listed as well. If you have a client who um, is comfortable on the internet and uh, you know, communicating with folks that way, that could be a good option uh, for them to find some community, maybe find some perspectives that they don't hear very often because typically when we hear about uh, auditory hallucinations, there's a lot of judgment and fear and shame and stigma. And so hearing from those uh, with lived experience is just the best. Um, and then the bottom link is to another manual on psychosis. Um, so feel free to check that out. And then here are the references that have, um, this is that book, Treating Psychosis. The, the one I mentioned really goes into uh, different ways we can approach it uh, using the third wave CBT practices, but also kind of includes some CBT stuff, traditional CBT stuff. And then some of these are available online, so feel free to check it out. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, thanks for your participation in the chat. Um, very glad to have you all in this training today. Keep on keeping on following those values. 
and I look forward to seeing you at a future training.